Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 278, The Thunderbolt. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. This week, members are listening to a Shop Talk episode on Dr. Z's theory that Edward the Elder might have been a bit of a weirdo. We go through the evidence that we have, and actually, there's quite a bit. And you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Richard, Matt, and Andrew for signing up already. There's a dirty secret to history podcasts, and it only becomes clear when you actually start one. And the secret is this. Many people will say that they want to learn something new, and they want to hear new stories and new facts about history. But every time, without fail, the most popular episodes and the most popular history shows in general are about stories and figures that people already know. Now, this isn't because people who say they want to hear something new are lying. They're telling the truth. It's just that they've forgotten that they're also looking for something else. They want to know more about stories that they feel are important. And that's reasonable. We only have so much time in the day, and so you kind of want to learn something that you feel actually has some bearing on history. But the problem is that this creates a self-defeating loop, because we often judge the importance of someone or something based upon whether or not we've heard about it before. If you've already heard about something in history, there's a good chance that you're going to assume that it was significant. Similarly, if I tell you about something that you haven't already heard about in history, you very well may assume it's unimportant. And this is why so many people have an unquenchable appetite for material about figures like Caesar or Henry VIII, but they start to get a bit antsy if I spend more than a handful of episodes on rulers with unfamiliar names like Penda or Offa. And what's at play here is a cognitive bias. People are going out and they want to learn something new, but they're also suddenly finding themselves asking, if this part of history was important then why haven't I heard about it already? And that bias is why the history section of so many bookstores tends to have whole shelves dedicated to individual marquee monarchs. William, Henry VIII, Elizabeth, whole forests have been destroyed in the production of books about their exploits. And part of that is because, as they're already well-known figures, selling books about them is pretty easy. People are already predisposed to want to know about them and to assume that they're important. Basically, they have really good press. Even King Richard the Lionheart, who barely even visited Britain during his reign, has a pretty good ranking in the modern imagination, possibly because he looks kind of kick-ass as a Disney lion. Similarly, if you knew anything about the period in history we're talking about right now before listening to my show, you probably already knew about Alfred the Great. And for good reason. The story of Alfred is really exciting, and he was a significant figure in history. But... Because he was a known figure before we even got to him, that helped burnish his reputation before you ever learned about his campaign on Athelney. And it signaled to you, hey, this is someone important for you to pay attention to. But that assumption of importance, or lack thereof, can be dangerous. Because it can lead you to discount lesser known figures. Furthermore, it might lead you to assume that if you've already heard about something, then it must have been just as important and popular in the past as it is now. And that's not always true. For example, you probably assumed that in the Middle Ages, Alfred was seen as the greatest of the Anglo-Saxon leaders. 
or at least the greatest of the House of Wessex. After all, great was in his name. But as we dig into the record, we find something interesting. And I'm talking about one record in particular, the Gesta Regum Anglorum, written by William of Malmesbury. Now, William was writing about 225 years after Alfred's death, which means that his account of the Anglo-Saxons was from a post-Norman conquest perspective. He was writing after 1066. Furthermore, he modeled his writing style on the style of Bede, which means that he drew his account not just from previous written records, but also from the accounts circulating among the people of 12th century England. What this means, and why his writing is so important to historians today, is that William is giving us an invaluable look into how the House of Wessex was viewed by the people living long after the time of Alfred and after Athelstan, the view of the people of the 12th century. And what he tells us is that even after the Norman Conquest, people were still singing praise poems about the House of Wessex. He even went to the trouble of transcribing one of the poems. Quote, of royal race, a noble stem hath chased our darkness like a gem. Great Athelstan, his country's pride, whose virtue never turns aside, sent by his father to the schools, patient he bore their rigid rules, and drinking deep of science mild, passed his first years unlike a child. Next clothed in youth's bewitching charms, studied the harsher lore of arms, which soon confessed his knowledge keen, as after in the sovereign scene. Soon as his father, good and great, yielded, though ever famed, to fate, the youth was called the realm to guide, and like his parent, well preside. The nobles meet, the crown present, on rebels, prelates, curses vent. The people light the festive fires, and show by turn their kind desires. Their deeds, their loyalty declare, through hopes and fears their bosoms share. With festive treat, the court abounds. Foams the brisk wine, the hall resounds. The pages run, the servants haste. And food and verse regale the taste. The minstrels sing, the guests commend. Whilst all in praise to Christ contend. The king with pleasure all things sees. And all his kind attentions please. End quote. Now did he catch what they were saying there? The people of 12th century England weren't singing about Alfred. They were singing about his grandson, Athelstan. That means that over a hundred years after Athelstan's death, long after anyone who knew him personally had died, and even after the rise of a new Norman dynasty, you still have people singing praise poems about the bastard king who was raised in Mercia and once ruled over the English. And that's because King Athelstan is probably the most beloved English king that you've never heard of. A quick scan of your local bookstore will reveal that pop history has all but erased Athelstan. And while we do have one Facebook follower who's such a fan of him that he's even given him a nickname, Stan the Man, I'm willing to bet that most of you were completely unaware of Athelstan. So today, we're going to shed some light upon Athelstan as a popular figure in history. Because like Alfred and Athelflaed, Athelstan was a titanic figure. But unlike Alfred and Athelflaed, his legend has largely faded in the popular imagination. But it wasn't always so. So before we get to the specifics of what Athelstan did, let's talk about how people spoke about him in the 12th century. Let's talk about the legend that Athelstan left behind. A legend 
that unfortunately has nearly died. And the first thing to know is that the legend of Athelstan, the story that still circulated at the time of William, almost sounds too good to be true. Much like how the praise poem exalts him for essentially ushering in the age of Aquarius, the image of Athelstan in the popular imagination feels very close to a sort of King Arthur figure. Furthermore, he was also linked in the popular imagination to another well-known figure, Alfred. In fact, we're told of how Athelstan was the old king's favorite, and that even as a young child, he was exhibiting noble qualities. Quote, even as grandfather Alfred, seeing and embracing him affectionately when he was a boy of astonishing beauty and graceful manners, had most devoutly prayed that his government might be prosperous, end quote. So we're being told that he was beautiful, he was graceful, and that his government was blessed by Alfred. That's not too bad so far. And William goes on to tell us that as a result of being raised by another popular figure in history, Athelflaed, Young Athelstan's noble qualities soon became so luminous that they banished all envy from those around him. Basically, he was saying that Athelstan was so wonderful that nobody was even upset that he was destined to rule. Instead, his behavior, much like his appearance, just reinforced the sense that he was selected by God. Quote, his manner was charming and well-disposed to churchmen, affable and kind to laymen, serious with the nobility out of regard for his majesty. To the poor, setting aside the pride of kingship, he was approachable and serious-minded out of sympathy for their poverty, End quote. Furthermore, during his time with Athelflaed in court and presumably in the field, we're told that Athelstan, quote, at the expiration of his childish years, as he approached manhood, he gave proof by many actions what just expectations of noble qualities might be entertained of him. End quote. So Athelstan didn't just look good and speak eloquently. He was also a capable leader who had proven that fact in the field, and he had also demonstrated that he was just. And William goes on, quote, He was, as we have heard, of becoming stature, thin in person, his hair flaxen, as I have seen by his remains, and beautifully wreathed with golden threads, end quote. So, in addition to being pretty much the nicest guy in the world, Athelstan also had a reputation for being a stone-cold hottie, and this was in a time where your virtue and your appearance were believed to be directly linked. At every turn, William emphasizes how popular and beloved Athelstan was. And that's a far cry from the story we've been given of Athelstan's early life, isn't it? I mean, here we have a man who was such an outcast that he wasn't even allowed to be raised in the West Saxon court. A man who had to fend off a violent conspiracy against him when it became clear that he might inherit the throne. A man whose life was dominated by rumors of his illegitimacy at a time where the circumstances of his birth didn't just dictate his right to inherit, but also reflected the status of his soul. But a couple hundred years later, we're seeing him being spoken about in terms that sounds like the once and future king. His reputation got rehabilitated at a neck-breaking speed. And to make it even more impressive, the circumstances of Athelstan's birth were known to William when he was writing his history. William was writing all these wonderful things about Athelstan, even though he and most of his contemporaries believed that Athelstan was a bastard. 
Now, whether or not Athelstan was truly a bastard isn't something that's conclusively established. But the point is that in the popular imagination, the illegitimacy of his birth appears to have been part of the story. And that makes his reputation even more impressive. And this almost divine glow that we're getting from William's account of Athelstan isn't accidental. We're told that even when taking into account his illegitimate birth, Athelstan, quote, cast all his predecessors into the shade by his piety, as well as the glory of all their triumphs by the splendor of his own, end quote. That's right. 200 years later, an Athelstan was viewed as more pious and more glorious than his predecessors, which included Alfred. Now, William's emphasis on Athelstan's piety, especially considering the scandal of his birth, is an important clue as to why Athelstan gained and retained medieval rock star status. Think about what we know about his predecessors. In the show, whenever we've talked about Alfred and Edward, we were largely caught up in their wars. And that's for good reason. Wessex was dominated by war during that era. But if you imagined that there was a bunch of pious behavior that was happening just off of camera, you might want to think again. The House of Wessex had been growing increasingly focused upon secular and administrative matters. And you can see why they were doing this, right? The sons of Athelwulf had been dropping like flies, and the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were collapsing under the weight of invading Scandinavian armies. If there were any spare resources, those resources needed to go towards the defense of the realm, not towards repainting the local minster. But as a consequence of this reprioritization of defensive structures, that meant that Alfred had given relatively little to the church in comparison with other rulers. Now, this didn't mean that he was completely abandoning the church, but it was less than what was standard. And granted, he did other things that were really important, including the promoting of literacy. But as for hard and fast granting of properties to the church, things where we have charters saying that Alfred was giving this land to the church or this property or whatever, there was a substantial decrease. Furthermore, when Alfred needed to marshal church resources for construction, defense, or other purposes, he doesn't appear to have shown much hesitation. In fact, the construction of the burrs during the reign of Alfred were sometimes carried out in a way that led to a reduction in church lands, as we saw with the fortification of Worcester. Consequently, a survey of the available materials from his reign shows us that he was a calculating monarch who was willing and able to exploit any available resources, regardless of whether or not those resources were held by the laity or the clergy. Similarly, Edward appears to have followed in his father's footsteps with regard to how he was treating the church. And while you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, I remember that Alfred began the construction of Newminster in Winchester, and then Edward came along and finished it. So doesn't that prove that they were actually quite interested in the church? Actually, it looks like that might have been an outlier rather than the rule. And it very well might have been their efforts at developing a dynastic cult, which is a concept that we're going to have to return to later. Because when you look at the rules overall, you don't really see Edward and Alfred granting lands and privileges to the church to the same degree that we see with other monarchs. And that fact did not go unnoticed by the church. In fact, at Old Minster, Edward the Elder was remembered as Rex Avidus, the greedy king. Now contrast that with the stories that were circulating about Athelstan. When speaking of Athelstan, William praises, quote, how many new and magnificent monasteries he founded, end quote. 
and goes on to tell us that even with the older monasteries, there was scarcely one, quote, which he did not embellish, either with buildings or ornaments or books or possessions. Thus, he ennobled the new ones expressly, and the old as though they were only casual objects of his kindness, end quote. He was running around purposely building new minsters and cathedrals, but at the same time he was just casually expanding and improving any of the old cathedrals and minsters that were in the area. What William is telling us of is a complete reversal of West Saxon policy. Whereas predecessors used their authority to force compliance within the church and to extract resources, Athelstan, once he was king, appears to have used his time and his treasury to expand the wealth and stature of the church. And he wasn't just known for constructing religious houses. He was also being praised for endowing them with books and sacred relics. And this is a consistent theme with Athelstan. Throughout his reign, he acquired numerous relics and bestowed them upon the various religious institutions within his kingdom. And this started early. In fact, if you remember back to the last episode where he received that delegation from West Francia, well, among the gifts that were given to him during that meeting was the Lance of Charlemagne. And the Lance of Charlemagne was said to have been the same lance that pierced Christ's side. In medieval Europe, that was a pretty big deal. And under his tenure, that lance came under the possession of the House of Wessex. The legend of Athelstan starts to sound a bit like an Anglo-Saxon Indiana Jones. And I can't emphasize how big of a deal these relics were, especially among the clergy. Relics were essentially magical items in the medieval mind, and Athelstan was acquiring them in bulk for the kingdom. And he was doing this in addition to the religious construction projects that he was undertaking. And keep in mind that these holy houses weren't simply religious in nature. They also functioned as repositories of knowledge, schools, clinics, and they had a myriad other functions. What William is speaking of is a grand redevelopment of the intellectual and institutional strength of England. And he's crediting it to Athelstan. Now, Athelstan was no doubt the beneficiary of the many years of war that was carried out by his predecessors. Had Edward, Athelflaed, and Alfred not pushed back the Danish boundaries, we might not be hearing of Athelstan's religious construction spree. He might have been too busy building burrs. But they had. And so, Athelstan, even centuries later, had a reputation for being a remarkably pious man, far more than those who came before him. And then, there's the other half of that quote. He didn't just surpass his predecessors in piety, Athelstan also cast into shade the glory of his predecessor's triumphs in battle through the splendor of his own victories. And we're going to get into Athelstan's battles later, but what I wanted to share with you before we get into all the politics and the bloodshed of the age of Athelstan is the reputation that he earned. The Chronicle can tell us a lot, and it can give us a rough chronology of war and expansion, but it doesn't do a very good job at telling us who these people were, nor how they were remembered. But William's account does, and it paints an image that is remarkably consistent with everything else we've been told about Athelstan. Take wealth as an example. A large part of battle is the booty that's collected following the victory. It's something that isn't discussed all that much in the sources, and so for the most part, we aren't told how the various leaders in the Heptarchy handled it. But we are told what Athelstan did. When he acquired wealth in battle, 
William tells us that Athelstan, quote, generously divided man by man to the whole army. For he had prescribed himself this rule of conduct, never to hoard up riches, but liberally to expend all his acquisition either on monasteries or on his faithful followers, end quote. Athelstan is the sort of king that almost makes monarchy sound good. Almost. And in this kind of generosity with his army, Athelstan would have been returning not only to an older model of what it was to be a legitimate Anglo-Saxon ruler, but he also would have been acting more like the Danish warlords in the area. Those warlords who kept their bands and armies happy by sharing out the plunder from successful battles. You can start to see the outlines of how he built his popularity, can't you? But there's no plunder from battle without victory. And this is the other side to Athelstan. And unlike generosity, this quality has a different meaning for us today than it did back in the 10th and 12th centuries. We're told that Athelstan exhibited unyielding ruthlessness with his enemies. And for our culture, that's often interpreted as a flaw in character. But for this period in medieval ideology, a time when even bishops would sometimes lead armies, ferocity wasn't a flaw. Instead, bloodshed, providing that you were shedding the right kind of blood, could be another expression of godliness. And Athelstan more than demonstrated his tendency towards the divine. And it's that aspect that gives us the most famous quote about him. Quote, He was much beloved by his subjects out of admiration for his courage and humility, but like a thunderbolt to those who rebelled against him through his invincible courage. End quote. Athelstan, the beautiful, generous, charming king, was also ruthlessly effective upon the battlefield. He was so successful that he carried a reputation of invincibility, and people, even people living hundreds of years later, described him as a thunderbolt, a divine strike from God. And that is the man who has just taken the throne of Wessex. And he is also the man who will ultimately form England. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Well,